Okay, good afternoon. Welcome to the Leadership Series. Uh, my name is Ken Eads. Um, I'm uh, a finance professor. Some of you uh, know me, many others do not. Uh, so let me tell you just a little bit about uh, my roles at the, at the school. I'm actually head of the finance area. I teach a, a second year elective called Corporate Financial Policy. Just finished that in Q1. I have some, alumnus, some alumni of that course here. Um, and we'll call them in the future the fully educated. Um, and uh, I'm also the academic director of the Center for the Mayo Center for Asset Management. Uh, so I wear several hats around here. But uh, I was asked, and it's my pleasure to serve as the uh, moderator today for our speaker, who's Robert Wilmers. And uh, let me give you just a little uh, preview of the format. So the way we're thinking about this, we have an hour. Uh, we'll do about uh, 20 minutes. Uh, of Bob will give you a, a presentation. Uh, we'll sit down together, and I'll ask some questions of him. And then the last 20 minutes or so will be devoted to your questions. Uh, and Casey Floyd will be running microphones to people to uh, ask the question. So when you hold up your hand, wait till you get the microphone before uh, for answering the question. So that's the format. Um, let me remind you a little bit about uh, Bob's uh, bio. Uh, most importantly, uh, correct me now if I get some of these, uh, get a date wrong or so, but I think since 1983, he's been chairman and CEO of M&T Bank. Um, so I was thinking about asking how many people were born in 1983. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to point out to you that that's a long time for anybody to be a chief uh, CEO of any company. Uh, and he served in both roles, right? That's CEO and chairman for those, for those years. Um, and uh, he's uh, very active in a number of civic uh, endeavors. Uh, he's, uh, he's become actually somewhat known just for the, uh, the report to shareholders in the annual report. Uh, I actually had spoken to him earlier, and I'd mentioned, said, wow, that was some report in your uh, 2014 annual report, some letter. And uh, but then I went back and I checked in my office and checked, and sure enough, if you surf around, you'll find that uh, he's become somewhat known for that letter. And it's actually very informative, and uh, I hope that, uh, that, I, that we can get into some of those issues that he raises in the letter, which I think he does a good job of explaining not only M&T, but the banking industry in general. So our objective, I think what we need to think about for the next uh, 55 minutes is we need to see if we can figure out the secret sauce to how M&T Bank has been so successful and how Robert Wilmers has been such a successful leader of that bank. And we may have to work at that to pull it out of him, but uh, he's got quite a story to tell us. And join me in welcoming Robert Wilmers. Thank you for your kind introduction, Ken. Sounds like you were talking to my mother. <laughs> I want to talk to you today about my career in banking. Despite what you might hear, the business of banking is not all bad. And all bankers are not the same. It's important, to th I think, to distinguish between Wall Street banks and Main Street banks that facilitate commerce in cities and towns across America. These Main Street banks are community banks. 
accompanies that by carefully taking deposits and making loans, better the cities and towns they serve by supporting investments in new homes and new cars and new businesses, by contributing resources and expertise to community-based nonprofits, and by promoting overall economic development and job creation. I'm proud of my career as a community banker. It's a profession I see as a calling, as a way to make a difference. And it's my belief that banking and bankers are quite generally forces for good. I want to tell you today about the bank I've had the privilege of running, as Ken has said, for the last 32 years. I admit to being extremely proud of M&T Bank's success. We've grown from being a minor bank headquartered in Buffalo, New York, to the nation's 15th largest U.S. headquartered commercial bank holding company with branches and books of business and markets throughout the Northeast and the Mid-Atlantic. Since 1983, the bank's assets have grown from $2 billion to well over $100 billion. Net income has increased from slightly over five, $5 billion to over a billion dollars. There has not been a single quarter in which we've recorded a loss, and we've neither missed nor reduced dividends, even in the depths of the financial crisis. In fact, there are 20 banks in the S&P 500, and M&T is one of only two of them that did not miss or reduce its dividend during the financial crisis. At the same time, we've been able to create tremendous shareholder value, including reinvested dividends. The total return of an M&T share has grown since January 1, 1980 at a compound annual rate of 18.9%. That's the 24th best of the 607 publicly traded equity securities, which have been con continually traded during that period. And indeed, only slightly lower than the 19.6% rise seen in the value of the shares of Berkshire Hathaway, widely considered the investment gold standard. We've completed 24 acquisitions in the last 28 years. And it's worth noting that in our acquisitions, we've continuously moved next door, if you will, buying into regions contiguous to our so-called vintage markets. From Buffalo, we moved into Rochester, and then to Syracuse and Albany, from central New York into central Pennsylvania, from there to Maryland and Washington, D.C., then next door to Delaware. We were gratified, to be honest, ex extremely proud to recently complete a long planned merger with the Hudson City Bank Corporation and expand our franchise in into, New Jersey, into the New Jersey market. Truthfully, not to any surprise to you, this deal was our most challenging. It was a transaction that tested both our patience and our metal. 
1,129 days elapsed from the day we first announced our intention to buy Hudson City until the deal was approved, approved by the Federal Reserve. But who's counting? <laughs> Some of you will be familiar with the reasons behind the delay. I'll make a long story very short for those of you who, who are not. Our regulators, while reviewing the parameters of the deal, identified pro improvements we needed to make in our Bank Secrecy Act and anti-money laundering programs. They withheld their approval pending the resolution of those items. We, we persevered because this was a deal we believed in. We believed that the opportunity to, to combine M&T's array of small business, business and commercial products and services with Hudson City's network of 135 branches in a highly desirable market was a powerful one, one worth doggedly pursuing. We wanted the chance to expand our community banking model to a network, a new network of communities. And so we worked and we waited. We enhanced our compliance programs and implemented scores of new policies, procedures, protocols, and processes. And as a result, we built a better bank, one boy poised to stand strong today, one capable of supporting future growth. When the Fed signed off on the $5.3 billion transaction on September 30th, more than three years after we first entered into the original agreement, we, we, we added almost $18 billion in deposits to our balance sheet and more than 1,100 employees to the M&T family. For the thousands that worked so hard to get this deal done, it was a day to remember and a day to celebrate. We look forward to the opportunity to bring even more value to our new clients. From Newark to New Brunswick, we look forward to being the bank, community bank in cities and towns across New Jersey. I tell you this story because I can think of no better way to describe the talent and the commitment of our people. Thousands of dedicated M&T bankers worked around the calendar and around the clock to enhance our BSA AML programs and to build an industry-leading risk management infrastructure. We implemented new systems and training programs, fundamentally overhauled business processes across our enterprise, and asked more of our employees than ever before. And if you know anything about M&T Bank, that right there is saying a great deal. The fact that we were able to adroitly mobilize and commit to the task at hand suggests the quality of our people and the strength of their character. This type of effort and commitment might seem unusual to some, but in M&T, uncommon dedication is commonplace. Indeed, intense personal commitment, the personnel commitment, the tendency to bleed M&T green is part of the very fabric of our culture. 
Everything I've mentioned so far, the story of our widespread growth and our recent Hudson acquisition was only possible because of our dedicated employees. We have the best people because we've made talent acquisition a priority for more than three decades. A community approach only goes so far as a community of bankers you have representing you. We've always had a strong emphasis on recruiting, hiring, and retaining talented employees. That means screening extensively, sometimes interviewing dozens of candidates for a single, single position. It sometimes means inventing a position for someone who might, might not fit the listed qualifications, but was just too good to pass up. And it means making a commitment to pay the compensation required, both in salary and, crucially, in equity stakes. To attack, to attract and retain talent. Over the past 30 years, we've institutionalized our search for talent and ensured that those new to the bank have an opportunity to be nurtured and to grow. We deploy not one, but two college recruitment programs. Our executive associate program, or EA program, was established in 1984 and recruits recently minted MBAs directly from business schools. And while our management development, or MDP program, began in 1983 as a route into the bank for talented recent college graduates. Both have been vital in the building our deep base of banking leaders. Through our EA program, we've hired 572 associates, 20 of them from, from this very place, Darden. 240 of our executive associates are still with us. Indeed, two are members of our man management committee. They, they are Rene Jones, our Chief Financial Officer and Vice Chairman, hired upon graduation from the Simon School at the University of Rochester. And Rich Gold, hired upon graduation from the NYU's Stern School of Business and currently Vice Chairman and Chief Risk Officer. And of the 1,287 employees hired by way of the MDP program, 546 are still with us, and 44 are senior managers. But don't get the impression, however, that we've ignored homegrown talent in our own ranks. M&T Bank President Mark Zarnecki began his career with us as a branch manager in Buffalo. These employees and countless others have infused M&T with diverse perspectives that have resulted in better, richer dialogue and, ultimately, more informed decisions. Yes, we've grown larger in recent decades, but we've retained the operating philosophy that has made us so successful. The 13 most senior managers at M&T still meet me weekly face-to-face 
to discuss the bank's most pressing business. We believe that's why the average tenure of an M&T employee is more than 10 years, more than twice as long as the industry average. I'm certainly proud of the talent M&T has attracted. I'm even more proud that they're still here. When I talk to my colleagues who've been with us for quite some time, I make it a point to ask them why they've stuck around so long. Invariably, I hear the same answers. M&T employees believe deeply in what they do. They come to work every day, every day, driven by the opportunity to do the right thing for their clients. Colleagues unite across business lines and organizational hierarchies to deliver the whole of the bank to our customers, their friends, and their neighbors. They steadfastly believe that acting as such will benefit the communities they share. They believe that a rising tide lifts all boats. They know that when our communities succeed, we all succeed. It's why M&T employees actively work to make their communities better, uh, better places in which to live and to work and to give back to the communities they serve. While such support certainly positions M&T as a leading corporate citizen, I acknowledge a certain enlightened self-interest in giving, knowing that the bank can only do well when the community does well. M&T employees do all of those things with that sense of intense personal responsibility that I mentioned earlier. The kind of sense of sworn duty that can only come with having a stake in the company and the community in which he or she operates. M&T employees feel that they're part of something bigger, that the company's fortunes are close to closely tied to his or her own work. They feel responsible for the long-term performance of the company and ultimately for the long-term performance of the stock. That's why long-term equity compensation is typically a significant part of our compensation structure. Our employees act like they own the place because they do. We've taken that view that a stake in the long-term prospects of the firm should extend throughout the bank. More than, 16, 000, more than half of our 16,000 employees own shares of our stock. Finally, there's a way of doing business at M&T, the sense that we do not just do the right thing, but we do it the right way. Employees feel valued and respected I firmly believe that M&T employees are cut from the finest cloth of character defined by simple values, by honesty, integrity, ethics, and respect, readily seen from the boardroom to the teller line. M&T employees are deeply committed to do the right thing and recognize that in this ever-changing world, the right way. There's no shortcut. 
M&T employees share my belief in the value of the business of banking. They believe that a banker ought to be a pillar in the community, seen as a concerned, involved citizen who can lend an ear, expertise, or a hand. M&T employees believe that banking is a noble profession. I'm proud of, to serve alongside them and gratified that so many of their careers begin, flourish, and conclude at M&T. I hope that as you contemplate the future and the ways in which you might make your mark on it, you'll think of M&T's culture and the reasons people want to be part of it. Choosing a career isn't just about improving your bank account, uh, bank account. It's, also, it's about improving yourself. It's, a, it's an opportunity to be part of something bigger. Perhaps you'll consider a career in banking. Perhaps that career starts at M&T. Whatever path you choose, it's my sincere hope that you find a profession that challenges you and one that, in turn, makes your community a better place to live. I hope that you recognize your obligation as a business leader to give back to the people with whom you interact and to the places in which you operate. Finally, I wish all of you the fruits of success, however you might define that word. But above that, I hope you'll make a difference in whatever field you find yourself. I hope you'll find a cause and champion it. I hope you'll make your community a better place. If it succeeds, surely you will be richer for it. Thank you very much. So Bob, let me invite you down and let's sit and uh, chat a bit. Um, my plan is, I'm sort of thinking about the types of things that we should talk about, just to give uh, the, the, the room here a sense of it. I'm going to talk about the banking, I'm going to talk about the business, I'm going to talk about the role of government in that. Some might use the word regulation, um, but uh, I want to get a sense of that. And uh, then I want to talk about leadership. Uh, you've talked about employees uh, a good bit and how proud you are of them and um, how you develop them. Uh, that was part of the message. But uh, leadership, your own style, and, and others in the C-suite would be something I think we could all learn from. But let's, let's start, let's, let's go back to, um, to banking, to the business. One way to think about banking is that, at least commercial banking, is, is pretty simple, uh, if, you know, if you had to give a description of it. But the devil's in the details. So give me a sense for what it is that M&T does that's just simply better than the others. You don't get this kind of stock performance and earnings uh, accolades without doing something better than the rest. So what is it and how do you do it? Uh, that's a tough question, Ken. I guess number one, um, we, we try to make as few mistakes as possible. Number two, we try to, as I mentioned earlier, to recruit the best talent available, either through our 
our, our training programs, which I mentioned, mm -hmm. or if we're looking for a, uh, a particular expert, we go looking for the best person and we by hiring executive recruiters. And if, if the recruiter doesn't deliver, we sometimes go to a second one. We don't settle for something less than the best. Um, uh, thirdly, um, we focus a lot on collaboration. Banking is, uh, for the bank to succeed, you've got to have teamwork and not silos. And finally, we encourage not only collaboration, but hard work and good judgment. So let me let me take that a little bit. Let's see if we can go a little bit deeper on 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 that in, in terms of an example. Um, so there's getting the right people in place. I hear that. Um, but what about uh, what about the the acquisitions? When I think about you, so I think you said the number was 24 acquisitions is over the history. Uh, you just did uh, Hudson City, which was a which was a big acquisition, and uh, a couple of questions come to mind for that. But um, how do you get how do you get the, the best people of those organizations to stay with you in, after, the, after the deal is done? And how do you integrate these, these, these banks into your, your culture, into your bank? Well, for, first of all, right from the get-go, from the branches on up, we, we, day one, we have buddy systems. So that a couple people, for instance, a couple people from Vintage M&T will go into, the, go into branches and spend several weeks with the people in the branches to show them our way of doing things, our way of thinking, and who they should be communicating with. Um, and we do that throughout the bank. And, uh, Secondly, we send, and at more important levels, we send our people to work in, in at that bank, and uh, so, and presumably we take charge of that bank at the same time. So, uh -huh. But we're trying to integrate the best and the brightest of that bank, and finally, as far is getting their people to stay, um, it hasn't really been a problem. We recognize the talent and we treat them fairly and they stick around. Um, now, some banks we've acquired have had a certain amount of talent and some have had very little. But we, we accommodate. The fact that we've hired, recruited, the, the, the great amount of talent over the years in our training programs, I think has helped us enormously because if we hadn't recruited these young people, young at the time, some of them less young today, uh -huh. um, we wouldn't have been in any position to, uh, to, to staff the, uh, the, our, the institutions that we acquire. But, um, looked at a, 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 a different way. Um, we also 
every, every institution has its budget, and budget time, people are always looking to where they can cut expenses. So, but we've never allowed, the, the, I'm sorry, let me start again. In the, the, the day, the train, people in the training programs get placed in the bank, the first year's salary is play, paid by the Human Resources Department, not by the, the particular department. So corporate picks it up to begin with. Yes. And, yeah. So by the time person's been around for a year, then, then presumably he or she is loved or not loved, and it becomes an easier decision. But if we didn't do it that way, I'd be concerned that our, our training programs would, would be cut before they got started because it's easy to get rid of non-existent people. So what's the role of, uh, of uh, acquisitions for M&T going forward? Um, I mean, lots of opportunities there. You talked about you try to do it geographically. Uh, do you see that as a, a big part of your growth? or? Uh... We focus, at all times, our total focus is the business at hand. To, 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 be, to be, as one of our commercials used to say, all the bank you'll ever need. And we focus on being the, the bank in the communities that we serve. Um, but uh, opportunities of a way to come that come along, and uh, we we have a, a we don't use investment bankers except for fairness opinions. Hmm. Um, I, I think in the case of Hudson City, we paid our investment banker a million dollars. Hudson City paid theirs thirty million dollars. Um, we we. we we're pretty good at analyzing situations, and they come to us, and if they make sense, we acquire them. We're, we're not looking to, I, I doubt we'd ever acquire a bank in Arizona. It's too far from our geography. The culture in Arizona is pre pres presumably a different in small ways than our culture. So um, we usually, where, you, where we go is always more desirable to bulk up where you are. But if you can't bulk up where you are, you like to bulk up next door where you're already somewhat plugged in. So in this environment, we had a conference last week. Uh, it was the University of Virginia Investing Conference, our eighth annual, and we had speakers so this about asset management. But um, one of the speakers talked about the uh, financial services sector. He's a hedge fund, and they, they, they own the uh, typically uh, medium to small banks. And I've forgotten the number. It was either, there's either 3,000 or 6,000 banks still in this country. I don't know what the, About 6,400. Okay, I, so 6,000 was the number. I don't count. Okay. Um, so there's got to be a good number in the Northeast uh, Atlantic Coast. Uh, is, is there any sense that there are more opportunities now in this environment or, or fewer? Or would that, will that come to play in terms of just the, the value proposition? Will that change any of your appetite? Well, um, so, so you've asked a lot of questions all in one there. <laughs> sounds, just answer one of them. Pick uh, one that you it, like. It sounds like a professorial attitude. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that, 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 that said, um, if you look at where the 6,400 banks are, 
some of them for historical reasons are concentrated in certain states. There are a lot in Missouri. We have no desire to go to Missouri. But yes, are there opportunities around elsewhere? Yes. Do we, do we, we want to get and have to get Hudson City on our belt, under our belt before we go elsewhere? Uh, totally. Uh, and beyond uh, there, there are some banks today where management is tired of, of banking or at least tired of regulation and want to, and are interested in a merger. There are other, ba all banks today as a result of the crisis are overcapitalized today and are looking to make acquisitions. And we've seen two that have been announced in the last two weeks, which in my mind make no economic sense. So we will not overpay for anything. The bank graveyard is full of banks that overpaid. But we got a healthy, vibrant business with a lot of talent. Okay. Um, let me get back to what you do well. What would be some of the metrics uh, that I should think about for M&T that are that look particularly strong relative to other other banks? Coming to work for us? Um, I'm, I'm thinking about others who might want to come to work for you. I. I I think. Uh, Look, there's some way that you got the, these kind of uh, stock valuations, and it has to have something to do with how you drive the, the profitability of the bank. So I, I think uh, we're, we've, we've got a very talented organization. We have a very collaborative organization. I have lunch about once a month with a half dozen pe people that have come out of the training programs and have been with the bank two or three years, and I. I ask, I, one of the questions I always ask them is, what do you like about the bank? And eight, nine times out of ten, they say they like the culture. The people talk to each other, people work together, no, but people are not trying to one-up each other. That, that's, um, I, and I think that pervades the bank. I'm not going to say that with 16,000, a team of 16,000 people, there aren't some that try to one-up their colleagues or whatever, but it's a collaborative operation and one that's well-respected. And the way we operate has passed the, the test of time. Um, when, I, when I joined the bank in Buffalo, we had 14% 14, 14 market share. We have 46% market share today. Hmm. And uh, uh, um, we were the fourth largest bank we're obviously the largest bank in, in Buffalo today. So I, I think those, those are all good reasons to join the bank. And we, we focus, we have a culture, it's a shared culture. It's one of working together, and I think that's very important. I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, government role, regulation, and again, I did enjoy the letter to the shareholders because I thought you gave a, a, a pretty uh, lively feel for the challenges that a bank of your size, your $100 billion, which is obviously not small, but you're not the super majors, uh, right? Um, what, uh, in fact, let me, let me read a little bit from, uh, from, this, uh, from your letter. This is the 2014 annual report. 
uh, M&T's estimated annual cost of regulatory compliance rose to $440 million, 16.3% of our total operating expense, an amount that is over four and a half times the level of just three years ago. Um, much. I mean, where are we going with this in terms of uh, regulation? Pendulum swung too far? Uh, I, I think the pendulum has swung too far, yes. Um, but there were, there were certain sins that were created before the financial crisis. And um, there's, they're still getting a lot of press in the paper today, papers today. And um, as a result, politicians, whether they be on the left or be on the right, um, have found that they can get a lot of ink by criticizing the banks. Incidentally, if you go to a, if you go to a lot of people, some people, you say, what do you think of the of banks? They'll say, oh, they're all a bunch of crooks. And then they'll say, and then you ask, what do you think of your bank? Oh, it's a great bank. And then you'll say, ask, what do you think of your banker? Oh, he, he or she is fantastic. And that, that, you can use that as a rule of thumb. But the overall image of banks is not good. And every time some, some bank is paying a fine or somebody's being on trial, that hurts us, all banks big and small. And th that'll keep going. And, and, uh, uh, and so then the regulators are, have their, their ear to the ground and they're seeing and hearing all this. And they want to make sure that they're not making any mistakes, that they can't be, can't be accused of anything. So they're, they're, they're dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's, and it makes for a, a lot of excessive regulation. How many separate, the, the, I don't even know if you know this number, how many separate regulatory bodies, federal, state, surely it doesn't go any lower than that, that have some sort of compliance or some sort of uh, uh, yeah, compliance need that you need to, to meet as the bank? Do you know what the number is? I, I, I don't know, I can tell you the last two years, we've been, we've been examined by nine regulatory agencies 72 times. And uh, just to give you an example, um, there's a, an act called CEQA, Service Persons Something or Other Relief Act. It's another acronym. Well, well, you know, what is it? Civil service member relief act. Yeah. Which basically says that a service a service person gets called up for active duty. That the bank has got to put a ceiling on the interest rate that service person pays, and also all fees get waived. So the service person will get a letter July 1st saying that you're being called up for active duty. August 15th. And we were interpreting those letters to start reducing the cost August 15th, and mm -hmm. we were doing it. It was supposed to be done July 1st, the date of the letter. Uh -oh. So we, we, the other day, 
we got a wrist slap because we overcharged, um, I think, uh, nine service people $122. <laughs> Not $122 each, but 122 divided by nine. <laughs> In the old days, we might have done it, but I wouldn't hear about it. Now, now it becomes a big deal. We process close to a billion transactions a year. We're going to make mistakes. But then look at things a different way. There was a point in time where Elizabeth Warren was going to be head of the newly created CFPB. And she came one day to a Financial Services Roundtable, which is a grouping of the 100, 150 largest financial institutions. And she made a speech and she said to us, I look forward to working with all of you. And I wrote her a letter and said, I'd like her to come visit Buffalo and all, all our doors would be open to her, uh, to her to see whatever she wanted to see. She never answered my letter. So a month later, a month later I wrote her a second letter saying, surely you overlooked my letter. <laughs> She never answered that either. So I don't know how much she's looking to get in the weeds to understand banking, but she sure has an opinion about a lot. <laughs> and, and she's got a certain amount of influence, and it doesn't, but we all suffer because of that kind of thinking. Yeah. Um, all these things come at a cost. When you see something like $440 million, it, it really catches your attention. A few minutes uh, left. I'd like to talk about uh, leadership. So I'm going I'm to transport you back to an uncomfortable year. That year would be 2009. And here's my, my hypothesis is that leadership's easy when the times are easy. Leadership's, leadership doesn't really count until the times get tough. Uh, now, M&T didn't take nearly the hit that uh, a lot of the other banks did uh, at that time. But uh, we actually spoke earlier about, uh, uh, and you mentioned the, the consistency you've had in the dividend. You've had, the company has not uh, reduced or, or eliminated the dividend in a long time. Um, but that must have been a point at which paying that dividend was a discussion point. Um, so it's a board decision, but How did that sort of play out, and what sort of, uh, how did you think of your role in terms of, uh, as the leader of the, of the bank? Um, that's why Ken's so successful is asking questions like this. Um, he asked me that question before, and I said I didn't think about it. Now I don't remember what I was thinking about. <laughs> but you've had time to think about it. Not, but I, I, I met with some wonderful young people today, and I'd rather think about what they were saying than that, that, that little question you asked You can me. do that in a few minutes, right now. <laughs> <laughs> but, I can refresh your memory on a couple of points because I've learned a little bit about that yeah. decision, but I'll let you talk. Uh, so anyhow, uh, Ken asked me that question before, and I said it was no problem, didn't think about it, and we covered the dividend. Then I found we covered the dividend for the year, but we didn't cover it every quarter. Is that right? Right. The dividend was higher than earnings for, I think, two of the four quarters. Yeah, but it came out okay. 
sort of like a 97% payout for the year. So, I mean, that's pretty tight. It was tight, but... <laughs> I mean, there's a little riverboat gambling on this. That, 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 that is true. Yeah. But um, everybody has their riverboat moments. <laughs> and we weren't doing the bank any damage in the process. And as, I, true. And as I told you, Ken, at no point in, in, since I've been around, and maybe you can prove me wrong here too, <laughs> We, we've always we've always reserved more than we've charged mm -hmm. off, mm -hmm. and so and we've always been adequately capitalized. And I, I don't think you'll find many banks that have many, if any, banks that have re reserved more at all times than they were charged off. Even today, over the last few years, I would say that over 90% of the banks of any size have recuperated reserve, put reserves back into earnings, uh -huh. which we've never done. Ever since I've been around, we, um, we have re re reserved more than we charged off, uh, which becomes the way the SEC and, uh, and, and FASB, uh, now particularly FASB, um, um, accounts for reserves um, to me makes no sense because FASB has banks reserve more in bad times and less in good times where intuitively one would feel and I feel very strongly banks should reserve more in good times and less in bad times so that you're just like animals store food away for the winter, um, banks should create reserves when the going's good, but FASB doesn't let you do that. So I'm going to open it up to a question. First of all, I'd like to, to, to point out that I'm going to put a little interpretation on what you just told us is, I had mentioned earlier about the uh, performance of the bank and the stock price. One way you get that performance is not to have bad surprises for the street. So the being conservative in how you reserve and, um, and not cutting that dividend, even though it might have been a little bit of a gamble, I want to point out that in 2010, that payout ratio is down to 50%. So it's clearly just looking past the hiccup. Thank and, you. And uh, you knew exactly what was going to happen. So Jack, let's make sure we get the uh, microphones up in the back. Jack Oaks. Let's put your hand up so they know who you are. You're making run. <laughs> Thank you for being here today and for Darden myself. How, if at all, is your management of the bank influenced by Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway? Well, Warren uh, originally, uh, let me start again. Uh, Warren's owned the Buffalo News for a long time. And the publisher of the Buffalo News, Stan Lipsy, is a big buddy of mine. And one day he told me that Warren owned 100 shares of M&T, big investment. And, <laughs> and he liked what was going on. And uh, if the occasion came up, he, he, would, he wouldn't mind investing in the bank. 
And then uh, we got to know each other, and uh, a few years later, the FDIC put up a, 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 a bank for sale called, called Gold Dome, and some guy at the FDIC called up one of my colleagues and said, you want to you want to uh, you want to buy gold though, and uh, my colleague said yes. And then the next day, the same guy called up my colleague and said, "I'm sorry, that phone call yesterday was a mistake. Uh, you're too small." And my colleague said, "Yeah, but we're resourceful." And the guy at the other end of the phone said, "You got a week to show us how resourceful you are." So I, I called Warren up and told him what was going on. He said, you write the letter and I'll sign it. And things didn't work as quickly those days. This was about 1991, something like that, as they do today. And several months later, I called Warren up and as I figured, uh, he knew that I knew that the letter he signed really didn't mean much except the FDIC. I said, were you really serious? And. Uh, he said, yeah, if I weren't serious, I wouldn't have written the letter. I said, well, why don't you invest in it now? He said, he said, but don't you want to make sure, we still didn't know anything. You, you want to, don't you want to make sure that the FDIC, you'll get the bank? I said, no, uh, I, I'd like you to invest. He, he said, how much do you want to invest? I said, you want me to invest? I said, I don't know, this was different times. I said, 40, 50 million dollars? And Warren said, what, 40 or 50? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I choose 50, yeah. Yeah, I chose 40. Oh, you chose 40. <laughs> uh, so, you gotta be a gambler now. I guess, then. yeah. Uh, so, this, was, this went on for months. And uh, I, I did my best to keep him informed what was going on. And he told me at some point in that dialogue, treat me like any other uh, shareholder. I don't treat him like any other shareholder, obviously. Um, but I, I, come to, I go to him for advice uh, on occasion. I talk to him from time to time. But uh, it's not an he's very supportive. He says nice things about the bank and nice things about me behind behind my back, and I think it, it, it's it's given the bank an aura that it might not have had without him, and I'm I'm delighted he's a shareholder. So that forty million's had a good bit of growth to it. Yeah, he's not okay too. Yeah, <laughs> he's a bit of a gambler too. No, I understand all that. Perfect. Cool. Thanks for coming. Uh, question a little bit about leadership. You're talking about how a huge number of your EAs are, that originally came with the company are still with the company, and you all have a very specific culture. I was wondering what type of leadership style have you seen um, that members really excel at MNT, and maybe what type of leadership style is best suited elsewhere? Uh, I think the two, the two, two strongest elements are, are one. Working, working hard, and sh showing good judgment, and at the same time being collaborative. We, we, 
the bank would not be very accommodating to somebody that's looking to hit 60 home runs a year. If you had to comment on two, two different profiles of leadership, one as kind of a value in, investor and the other as a kind of a charismatic visionary, um, how, how would your commentary differ between, between those two? A charismatic vision, visionary and what's the other one? Uh, a value investor. Oh. I don't know how to answer that. <laughs> That was short. You want to answer it? <laughs> you're, you're the teacher. No, no, I'm the moderator. I'm not the teacher. Um, you spoke a lot about the importance of community connection in retaining your employees. I'm just curious, is there something that you felt you've done differently than other banks have to foster that community connection relationship? I believe, we believe, that we're community banks and we, we live it. We encourage, we encourage our colleagues to get involved in the community and those institutions that enhance the quality of life in our communities. And uh, that, that ma makes for, um, helps those, hopefully helps those institutions with the kind of judgment and, and, and work that our colleagues would show. It also, we support within, within bu budgetary constraints, financially, those institutions. So I think that makes, it, it helps our bankers get around as well. So they, we get to know the other people in the community we see our client, we get to know our clients in a, in a different kind of way. We see who, who, they're, who, they're, who they're related to, who they buy from, who they sell to, and uh, who they hang out with. So it, it helps uh, uh, refine our judgment as to extending credit to those kind of to, to those institutions in the community, and sometimes that's more important than sophisticated analysis. And besides, we're a lot. If you look at the map of our community, our, our our world, a lot of our world is what used to be called the Rust Belt Rust Belt world, which is not growing very rapidly and uh, which Garrison Keeler said about our kind of towns are ones where um, people have long forgotten and history won't be kind. And if, unless we're, we're, treat, um, we're involved in the community, getting to know these, the people in the community, um, we lose the, our clients to other banks it'd be much harder to get them back. So it's, it's a happy kind of marriage, being involved. I'm 
told that this mic is giving us some feedback, so we'll just ask you to speak up. You. Hi, I'm Jen Coleman. Thank you so much for being here today. Um, you talked about M&T being next door. What is M&T's view of the future of the physical branches? And um, you know, how does that compare to your competitors? And can you have that concept of next door without the physical branch? Well, we can. We, Jen, we can be um, a community bank without necessarily being next door, um, but and indeed less and less transactions are happening in the American banking system through branches every year. People are using alternative, alternative communication whether it's ATM machines, mobile banking, or whatever, but people still like like to see even the millenniums like to see the, the millenniums that never go into a branch like to see physically that it's there, and I I, I think that banking. Will, is alive and well and will continue to be for M&T and unfortunately for a lot of other banks for a long time to come. But the, the way people will be, be, will be banking might change. So it's a little glimpse into the future. We're out of time, so please join me to uh, thank Bob Wilmers for being here today. <laughs>